I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story. So Peter confessed Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that's some of what we're going to talk about this morning. The title of my lesson is Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, our Savior. This hopefully is a basic lesson, kind of a fundamental study of, of who Jesus is. Um, and this is sort of a, a, a sermon outline I, I borrowed from ancient times. Of course, it's all from the Bible, right? So it's it's from then, but uh, I want to take a, a little detour and, and look at these bumper sticker things that we see. So uh, I don't know if any of you have these, but um, I don't. But uh, we see these around, and uh, the idea here is uh, sometimes they call that the Jesus fish. Um, and and when someone would put that on their car, what they're what they're intending there is is they're signaling that they're a Christian. Um, and, and this is uh, said to be an ancient symbol. And we see in these examples, uh, this is a fish, and we have the cross in there to help us clue in that, oh, that's related to the cross, which was a symbol for Jesus. And of course, you have the word Jesus here. In this one, we have these crazy Greek letters that we don't understand. Um, but that's what we're going to talk about a little bit. Um, it's, it's pronounced ichthus or something like that, ichthys, ichthus. And, it, and it's the word for fish in, in Greek. And of course, we've also seen parodies of, of that where we'll have a Darwin fish and, you know, we can't, we can't all get along. We have to all make fun of each other. And um, people are, of course, as we studied in our Revelation class, we have opponents that are against Christians. So we always have someone that's going to uh, try to give someone that's trying to express something good about Christ to give them a hard time. Um, and we, we might ask, well, what's the, what's the deal with uh, fish, and why does that relate to, to Jesus? Um, and we could think in the Bible, you know, I'll make you fishers of men, where he, he told that to some of the disciples as they were currently fishing, and he's calling them to work with him uh, and, and to work to persuade men to follow Christ. In Matthew 4, we could read that. Matthew 12, we see the reference to the sign of Jonah. No, no sign, you know, people want the sign. They want, show me a miracle to prove who you, say, who you say you are. And no sign will be given but the sign of Jonah, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. So the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth and talking about his, his death and his resurrection. Um, we might think about Jesus feeding the huge crowds in Matthew chapters 14 and 15 where there were just a few loaves of bread and some fish, and the miracle of being able to supply uh, food to all of those groups. We could think about the temple tax, uh, where sort of a miracle we don't really see happening, but we see Jesus sort of saying, you can do this. Um, you know, how do we pay the temple tax? We'll go and cast your, uh, your line, and, and you'll pull a fish out, and there will be a coin in its mouth, and you could pay the temple tax for yourself and for me. We can think about uh, John chapter 21 toward the end where uh, after Jesus has risen from the dead and he kind of reenacts some of those things to the disciples cast the 
cast the nets on the other side of the boat, and they realize it's him, and, um, and then we see him eating fish on the, on the side of the Sea of Galilee. I'm not really sure if any of that's why um, this was sort of a connection that they made. And we're probably talking in the 200s and 300s around there, A.D. Um, but if we look at, think about um, Judges chapter 12 and the, the shibboleth and this idea. We have this conflict between the Gileadites and the Ephraimites. And as the Ephraimites were, were trying to escape, they had a, a sort of a password, a shibboleth. And that's actually, as an IT person, we use the word shibboleth for a password system today. Um, but this was a, kind of a, a password they used in this conflict. And it was kind of a, more of a pronunciation quiz than do you know the secret word. It's more can you say the secret word. Um, and, uh, you know, we might think if you ever studied Spanish, I, I studied Spanish. and I, Can you roll your R? I'm not even going to pretend to try because I can't do it. But that's some of the challenges we may have encountered in trying to say things that are not native for what we've learned. Um, or think about maybe in the African countries, there's Zulu and the sand languages where they do clicking. But I, I can't make words out of it, but they, you know. We're not used to making certain sounds, and so they'll kind of show your background when you, when you try to say it. So if we think about uh, the Gileadites, uh, here, we can, we can read from uh, Judges 12, 5 through 6. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over. And the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? And when he said, no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth. And, and he said, Sibboleth. So it was an SH sound, I guess. Couldn't say. He said Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. And so uh, this Christian secret password from the 200s and 300s um, was more subtle and less confrontational. They weren't slaughtering people over this. They were really trying to prevent being slaughtered was the idea. So, you know, we've been studying in our Revelation class even this morning about the persecution of the Christians in the first century, and then the idea that there's ultimate victory to that thing. Um, but God's timelines are not always what we want them to be, and if we look back at history, um, we see that a lot of uh, that persecution went off and on, off and on, up until about AD 311. And if we think back to the 100s through the 300s, when the church was being persecuted, some of these symbols... Um, would have come in particularly in the in the 300. So there's a period of time called the Great Persecution from AD 303 to 311, a fairly short period of time. Probably not short if you were living through it. But then then that was where uh, after after which Christianity was tolerated and even became the the state religion of Rome. But but before it was tolerated, there was a great persecution, and for fear of being killed, you'd be cautious if you're in the public marketplace, and uh, maybe, maybe I don't know Michael, he's a stranger, or I'm a stranger, or whatever, and from town, and, and I'm wondering, I'm not going to say, hey, are you a Christian? Well, we're all at threat of death over that, because that would be not the best approach to not be killed. So what, what um, and some of this kind of is legend, I have a hard time getting some of this uh, substantiated, particularly with this 
symbol. But, but as the, the, the story goes, if I was trying to figure that out with Michael in the marketplace or some public place, I might just draw on the ground as we read about Jesus drawing on the ground different times. I might just draw this, this arc, just this part. And then if, if Michael knew what was up, he might, he might come by and just all, you know, just all sneaky, sneaky, and he'd just draw that other part. And we, we drew a fish together, and that kind of was how we could know, hey, brother, and we're, we're on the same side, and we're not going to get killed here, and maybe you'd hide that, and maybe you'd leave that as an as a encouragement to others. I don't know. But in my study, I couldn't, I couldn't find, like, any ancient depictions of this. We have, obviously, we have the bumper stickers today, and we have the story of the, of the fish, but um, what I did find was this sort of symbol, and again, this goes back to the letter. So this is how you spell fish in Greek. Uh, I'm not going to get all technical here, but this symbol of this wheel is something we do find back at that time as a symbol of the fish and, and to, re- to um, relate to Christians as sort of this symbol. And if you get creative here, you can look at each letter. This bar fits here. This letter looks like an X fits here. And then this theta here is the whole circle with the line through it. And then this upsilon would, would be this, like a Y. And then this sigma here, would, this one's a little tricky. You fit it like that. So, so they're all in there. Um, but when you look at it, not knowing what the deal is with it, you go, oh, that's a wagon wheel or whatever, or a chariot wheel at the time, you'd think. So we see, we see examples of this uh, ancient fish motif in the 4th century, around this time that we're talking about, these great persecutions preceding where there was a relief. And so an actual example of that, instead of just some computer drawing, this is from uh, Ephesus around this time, and we see both the... The explicit, you know, it's like maybe someone's teaching what it means here or something. They've got the letters and then they've got the, the symbol that, you know, as we just illustrated, composes those letters. We see on a street in Rome, um, this is a paving stone. They, they had these flat stones and, and they put those together for the roads. So we see this symbol on a paving stone. And perhaps this was adjacent perhaps to a shop or a home of a Christian or a place where they meet, you know, you can imagine maybe some uh, stranger who's familiar with this idea, but coming into Rome and not knowing who to connect with, but maybe seeing that on the, on the paving stone, as faint as it is, probably more prominent uh, a long time ago in the 300s. And you would know, um, oh, hey, there's this, this is right by this place, and I'm going to talk to this guy and maybe, and maybe uh, figure out if I'm safe here to talk to Christians and become a part of the local church and that kind of thing. And we can think about that in American culture, the hobo signs. We've, I think some of us have studied that, where in the Great Depression, all these men were kind of traveling around and begging, basically, and looking for work and that sort of thing. And, um, there would be little symbols that kind of only they understood, and the symbol would be, well, this house is friendly, and they'll give you food, or stay away, they have a dog, and um, here's the way to the train, that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, it's sort of the secret code. And this was something specific for Christians. But, but what's, the deal, what's the deal with the fish? Um, what, what does that have to do with anything? And so, again, it, it's this word, ichthus, which we don't need to get into all that, but it's an acrostic where each letter in that word for ichthus stands for 
another word. And of course, ichthysis shouldn't be all that unfamiliar because we can think of, you know, ichthyology, and maybe we don't think of that word, but that's the study of fish in English. Um, or if you have a little goldfish and you're worried about it getting sick, we're worried about getting ick, I've heard that, and you're, you buy ick medicine. Um, so that has to do with fish. But, but here, uh, these, these words that relate to it, and again, these are Greeks or whatever, but they relate to Jesus and Christ, the first letter for Christ, and then Theo of God, the Son of God, Huyos, and then Soter, Savior. So Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior. And that's, that's what um, was encapsulated in this whole idea of using that word, that word fish, as a, as a symbol to, um, to point to Christ. And so that's where I say I'm kind of stealing a, an ancient sermon outline. So today we're going to look at these ideas of Jesus, the name of Jesus, the fact that he's the Christ, the fact that he's the Son of God, and that he's our Savior. So let's look at the name of Jesus. So the first letter from that word fish, Iclus, is I, which relates to J in our English, which is Jesus. So we can think of Hosea, the son of Nun or Nun. Um, in Numbers, Numbers uh, 13, he was one of the spies. And Moses changed Hosea's name to Joshua. And Hosea means deliverer or, or salvation, savior in a generic sense, but Joshua means Jehovah is salvation. And we see a lot of, as we study through the Old Testament, particularly people's getting named, they're named such and such because of this. And this place was named such and such because of that. And so Joshua was named Joshua because he's symbolizing that idea of Joshua, Jehovah is salvation in the, the battles and things he did in the name of God. So we think about, um, about these names of the men there in, in Numbers 13, 16. One thing to note here is that when uh, the name for Joshua is the same as, as, uh, as Jesus in the New Testament. So Jesus equals Joshua. In fact, if you look... Uh, in Acts chapter 7, verse 45, where Stephen, who ultimately is stoned for his sermon, in the course of his sermon, which is sort of a big history lesson, he talks, among other people, he mentions Joshua. And if you look at the actual original Greek, it's the same, that Jesus name, which our, our translators thankfully translated Joshua, so we're not getting confused in who's who, but, it, but it's in the original language, it's the same name. So Jesus is named after Joshua. It's that same message that we're supposed to gain from that. And so we think about, about um, here in Luke chapter 1, where Mary has encountered the angel to learn about Jesus coming. Luke 1, verse 30, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. She didn't get to make up his name. Like I, Rachel and I named Violet, and we named Caleb, and we picked that out on our own. 
Mary was told by God to name the son Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. So the name of Jesus has meaning. God is salvation. And that certainly embodies what his life was about, what he means to us. No wonder God chose that name even before, even before his conception. This is not while he's in the womb gestating. This is even right before he was conceived. Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are before the Jewish council. They're making their defense about Jesus, about the name of Jesus. Let it be known, Acts chapter 4 verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing well before you, man he healed. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's not a smorgasbord of saviors to go pick from. Jesus. Jesus is our, our Savior, the one, the name that we have to be uh, loyal to, to, to have salvation. So the question is, of course, have you been saved from your sins? Have you taken hold of this gift of salvation from the name of Jesus? We can look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, God is salvation, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We will all confess Jesus one day at the judgment, but let's prepare for that, for that day, so that we can be right with him. Let's confess him today and follow him today so that we can have <coughs> heaven. Let's turn our attention now to Christ. The second part, the second letter in that ichthus was a letter that looked like an, an X. <coughs> we transliterate to a CH in, in English for the word Christ. In Hebrew, uh, the, in the Old Testament, this would have been Messiah. We read about the Messiah and all the prophecies about the Messiah to come. The Messiah and the Christ are synonymous, just the, the Hebrew version of the Christ. Uh, and it all means anointed. So we're talking about the anointed. And that idea would be one anointed with oil. We don't really do anointing today so much in our culture, uh, but back at that time, you would anoint someone and put oil on their head, and it would be a symbolic of their being set aside for a special work. So let's look at some examples of, of anointing and get an understanding of what this is. So we can think about uh, prophets and get the example of Elijah. Um, Elijah was told to anoint Elisha as his successor. Of course, Elijah was taken in the, the whirlwind. There in 1 Kings 19, 16, the second part, it says, And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mehalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. So Elijah needs to anoint Elisha to be prophet. <coughs> so prophets 
are anointed. We think about priests, the initiation of the priesthood with Aaron and his sons in Exodus chapter 30, verse 30, where uh, Moses is instructed, you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. So prophets and priests are anointed and kings. To think of the example of David. 1 Samuel 16, 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And of course, in that longer context, we have where uh, Samuel had come to Jesse's house. The son, we knew it's going to be the son of Jesse who was going to be uh, need to be anointed as the king. And there was a brought the older brothers there and left the youngest outside working. But God's plan was for the youngest son, who was David, and they brought him in for this to take place. So Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. So he fits all of this anointed. Jesus Christ is prophet, priest, and king. We think about him being a prophet, the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17 Verse 2, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And and, And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so we see Jesus juxtaposed together with these other great prophets, Moses and Elijah. We see God emphasizing and elevating Jesus to the ultimate status of prophet. Don't worry about, don't make these three tents. You're missing the point. Jesus. Listen to him. Are we listening to him? Prophet, priest, and king. So let's think about priest with regard to Jesus the Christ. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews is all about the new covenant with better things. Jesus Christ brings better things. Chapter 4, we think about him as the high priest, bringing a better better priesthood. And And isn't that comforting to know that he is able, he is it's not, one, it's not one who is unable to sympathize. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. He lived as a person on the earth, but yet without sin. Prophet, priest, and king. Let's think about king. I got, I got revelation on the brain because we're studying that in our adult class. So Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, or crowns of a king. And he, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has written a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is not just a king like among kings. He is the ultimate king of all. How will we approach and, and react to him? Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. This is from our scripture reading. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the one we've been looking for. All these prophecies have been talking about. You are the Messiah. Have you confessed Jesus as Christ? We see Peter doing that here and being praised for that in the following verses. But what, what, is, what is our behavior? What is our reaction to God and to his Christ? Let's turn our attention to the Son of God uh, verbs, or phrase here. We think about that next section of the, of the word fish. John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, very well-known verses. We, we can think about how we're adopted as sons, but that's not quite the same as, as Jesus' relationship. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So he didn't come to the world to judge the world. We're already in trouble. <laughs> People already were sinning and guilty of these things. But the purpose that he came into the world was that the world might be saved through him. And he's in the unique position as the Son of God to come in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us, to come and be that atoning sacrifice for us and that perfect example for us. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 16. Again, our, our, our verse from our scripture reading. And at the end there it says, He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, which we focused on, but also the Son of the living God. 
Matthew 26, verse 63. This was when Jesus was on trial before Caiaphas, leading to his crucifixion. Matthew 26, 63. But Jesus remained silent. All these accusations there leveling against him. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard the blasphemy. But it was not blasphemy. Jesus is the Son of God. We should join him. Let's turn our attention now to the Savior, the last part of our acrostic from Ichthus. Well, what are we being saved from? Maybe that's a question to take a step back. You know, thinking about... Um, other saviors at that point in time in history, there would be different uh, kings and rulers and conquerors that would label themselves with the same, the same word used here. Um, particularly, uh, one of the one of the Ptolemies who came after Alexander the Great used that as part of his title, Ptolemy Soter, which is the savior. We're not talking about some conqueror that's going to come take over our country and ruin everything and tax us to death. <laughs> We're talking about Jesus saving us from our sins. You know, the wages of sin is death. Jesus didn't come into the world to judge the world. We already had this problem of sin. The wages of sin is de death. All have sinned. All deserve death, logically. But we don't want that. Salvation saves us from this punishment that we deserve and gives us this grace to take that away. It's a free gift of God. And the question, of course, is will we take hold of the free gift or just, that's neat that that's available, but I'm not going to do anything about that. I encourage you to take hold of the free gift. Acts chapter 13, verse 21, another history lesson. And this, this is Paul giving a history lesson to the Jews. Um, of course, leading to Jesus in this, in this history lesson. Acts chapter 13, verse 21. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. We've studied that in our Wednesday class recently. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Jesus is our Savior, and it's all been prophesied leading to him. Again, John 3.16, salvation is his purpose and his coming. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Salvation is the purpose for his coming. 
Mark 16, 14 through 16. <clears throat> this is the, at the end of, of Jesus' time where he's about to ascend into heaven, and there's the Great Commission here. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, here's the, the charge, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Salvation. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. So we all have a choice. Believe and obey, and we'll be saved. Or just skip all that and be condemned. What will your answer be? So there's that crazy word up there again. The ichthus and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior. Jesus is God is salvation. That's what his name means. God is salvation. There's no other name whereby we can be saved. We think about the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, prophet, priest, and king. He's appointed for a purpose. Think about the Son of God and the birthright that he has to do all these things. And we shouldn't misunderstand as the Son of God that God created him. God the Father created the Son, but but he manifested in this way. In Genesis 1, we, we read, let us, let us do this and that. Let us make man in our image. Um, Jesus, the Son, the Word of God, was part of that from the beginning. Jesus is God, deity himself. Salvation, our Savior, it's only in him, it's only in Jesus. He's our only hope. So the question is, will we take hold of this free gift? And as we think about our invitation song, 810, Almost Persuaded, we could think about uh, Paul talking before uh, Agrippa and Festus, this sort of big courtroom scene where he's able to, to talk about all these things. <coughs> And, and uh, Acts chapter 26, verse 24. Now as he thus made a defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. He was talking about rising from the dead. That's crazy talk, right? We believe that, but people who don't believe don't believe that. You're crazy. Verse 25, but he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost 
and altogether as I am, except for these chains. Of course, he's there on trial. He's in chains. He's a prisoner. Paul wants for all of us to become a Christian like him. And we want that for you as well. And will you obey him? That's the question. So as we think about that, we would encourage anyone who's subject to the gospel call. Uh, we would love to help you with that, to become a Christian, or if you need to talk more, or have a study, or if you're a Christian and uh, have some, some things that you need to pray about, we're all here for each other. This is a church family, and we would invite you to lean on your church family as we stand and sing the song. I love to tell the story, twill be my theme in glory, to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love.